You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6 through 21. The message title is Puffed Up or Poor in Spirit. Puffed Up or Poor in Spirit. You can grab your outline and follow along. Take some notes if, if the Lord puts something on your heart that you want to remember. But there was once a rich man who invited many honored guests to a feast at his house. And he had his own chair very richly decorated there at the head of that long table. And uh, he you know, went away for a little bit to allow the guests to come in and register in the little guest book and to be seated for this wealthy man's party. And he, or when the time came to begin the feast and everybody had been seated, he came in and grabbed his chair and moved it to the other end of the table and sat down there. Uh, and it was, it was a shock to some of the guests that he would do that. But he was demonstrating there, look, I, I don't really want to sit with the people who think they should be sitting with me. I'd rather sit with the ones on the other end of the table. You know, the kingdom of Jesus is an upside-down kingdom in which the meek, not the proud, are going to inherit the earth. And we sometimes forget about that. You know, we're so in the world, in the society of the world, where the hierarchy is so often that pyramid. But we forget that in Jesus' kingdom, it's an upside-down pyramid, isn't it? And today, Paul is going to be talking about that. He's going to be contrasting two kingdoms, the kingdom of the world and their pride, worldly pride, and, and the kingdom of Jesus, which is represented by humility, and he begins there in verse 6. He's been talking about unity, and, and he's continuing this theme, but he's wrapping up the theme of unity because he's got to move on to some of the other issues that hap- were happening there in the Corinthian church. You know, I'm so thankful for the Corinthian church because it, it just reminds me and shows me, look, hey, church is church. It's, it's full of people, and people stink. And when you've got a bunch of stinky people together, man, you're going to have issues, Right? So there's no perfect church. There is no perfect church. And you know, if you find a perfect church, tell me. I'll go there with you. But then it won't be perfect anymore because I'll have ruined it at that point. But anyways, this church was dealing with a lot of pride. And Paul is going to pull that out in this message to the the church this morning. So it says, verse 6, Now these things, brethren, I have figuratively transferred to myself and Apollos, For your sakes, that you may learn in us not to think beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up on behalf of one against the other. Let's pause here. Note again Paul's use of the word brethren. He's so gracious, isn't he? This really helps to set the tone for what he wants to say. He's appealing to these people as a brother, he's asking them to learn. From Paul and Apollos' lives as examples of what, what leaders in the church are really meant to be. As a leader in the church, I'm thankful that Paul was so transparent. I'm thankful that Paul was willing to open his heart and allow uh, others to see uh, what it's like to be a leader. Because I need to learn. We all need to have examples in our lives to learn from. But the phrase... Here, uh, uh, beyond what is written, there in verse 6, he says, you know, that you may not do what, that beyond what is written. That's a little bit hard to interpret that clearly. 
Paul might be referring to the Old Testament scriptures that he's just quoted in verse, uh, chapter 3, a little bit earlier. Or he might also have been uh, uh, referring to a well-known saying in the Greek culture. Uh, it's believed that this could have been something that the Greek culture used. Hey, don't do that which is beyond what is written. Whatever the case is, Paul's still making the same old point here. He's saying that by being prideful, the Corinthians are living by worldly wisdom. You see, it had gotten carried away to the point of now causing divisions in the church about who their leader was. Paul uses the word puffed up, or the phrase puffed up there. And that just means inflated ego. You know, God has given us some great illustrations of what it's like to be puffed up in the animal kingdom. I live on a a little four-acre plot of land out in Blossom, and I have a rooster, much like this rooster that's on the screen. And, man, I see my rooster strutting around in his little pen every day. And whenever I happen to walk by, you know what he does? He ruffles up his feathers and puffs himself up and makes himself really big. And then he crows a few times, you know, as if just to let me know, I'm in control here, not you. These hens are mine, you know, and they're not yours. He's just letting me know. And it's hilarious. It cracks me up. But never seen a more prideful bird than a rooster. But this is kind of a good example of what it's like to be puffed up. You had these Corinthian believers. They were feeling insecure. And so in their insecurity, they were saying, let me remind you of who we are. Let me remind you who I am. I'm important. And they would be puffing themselves up and kind of crowing like that rooster. Another great example from creation of pride and being puffed up is the Jackson's widow bird. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of the Jackson's widow bird, but this bird lives in Kenya. I'd never heard of it before either until I watched Planet Earth, a documentary on Netflix with my wife. Great, very interesting documentary, learning all kinds of cool things about creation. But this Jackson's widow bird from Kenya has a very interesting mating ritual. You see, the males will come along, and there'll be just a whole flock of males, and they'll spread out across the the grassland there in Kenya, and they'll create a little clear patch there in the grass, and then they'll wait for a female to come along. And once that female widow bird shows up, these guys, they start jumping up like five feet in there. They have to get up higher than the grass so the female can see them. So you, it was hilarious watching this documentary. You have like about 50 Jackson Widow males, and they're all jumping like this, you know. Look at me. Look at me. You know, looking over the grass and trying to get this female's attention. And the female's just sitting there, you know. She's got it made. She's just like looking at all these, all these males just jumping up out of the grass. And, and, and her, her, she's waiting to see not who can jump the highest, which is what I thought. He's like, oh, that one's the highest. You know, she's going to pick him. But it's, it's all about who can last the longest. So she just waits. And pretty soon these males, they can't keep jumping. And so they start dropping off until there's only one left who's still jumping. You know, look at me, you know. And that's the one she picks. And she'll fly over there and they'll get into a little clearing. And he puffs up his feathers and he kind of, he walks around, you know. He walks around in a circle for a little while while she just looks at him. I'm, just going, I'm looking at it going, wow, Lord. What an illustration of me, you know. Look at me. Look at me. You know, and that's my, that's, it, it was hilarious. But this is what these Corinthian believers were acting like. They were guilty of this kind of pride. They were pridefully following one leader over against another, Paul says. 
Now, it's one thing to prefer one leader to another. That's natural, guys. We all do that. We all have a, a, a preferred pastor that gives us a message on our podcast list. Uh, and that's natural. But to tear down one leader in order to promote another and to think that in doing so, you're actually doing what God wants you to do, that's just wrong. That's sin. To be so much in favor of one leader that you're against another Christian leader is wrong. And it seems that the Corinthians were addicted to the sin of pride because Paul has to speak to them about being puffed up on several different occasions throughout his letter. Their worldly pride had led them to divide the church. Pride causes division. Our pride is not any different, Calvary Chapel Paris. So we need to certainly be on guard this morning for the insecurity that is caused by pride. We need to be on guard against the attitude that says, look at me, look at me. We need to be on guard against the attitude that says, I'm more important than others. Because all of that is worldly and it will lead to divisions of some kind. Now, in verse 7, Paul reminds the believers that they are not superior to anyone. And he does so by asking them three rhetorical questions. Look at verse 7 with me. He says, For who makes you differ from another? And what do you have that you did not receive? Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? You see, through these questions now, Paul is simply reminding the believers that they are not many wise They are not many of privileged position. They're not many of powerful influence. So really, what are they boasting about? They they, they have received the gospel. They had received God's leaders and God's gifted teachers to the church. They couldn't boast as if they were the ones who had initiated God's work in their lives. You know, we need to be reminded of our own humble position in Christ from time to time as well, don't we? What do we have? That we didn't receive. (laughs) What do we have? Everything, really, when you think about it, has been given to us. Down to the body that God has given us, the, the lungs, the air that we breathe. We have received it all, and it's from God. We need to be humbled and to realize that we don't have anything special either to offer to God, really. (laughs) It's God that deserves the glory. In the next few verses, Paul begins to use irony. That means that he's being a bit sarcastic. He's he's saying what he's going to say in these next few verses are kind of his way of pointing out the problem of pride there, but in a different, sort of humorous way to the believers. He says in verse 8, You are already full. You are already rich. You have reigned as kings without us, and indeed, I could wish that you did reign, that we might also, or we also might reign with you. There's the irony in his tone there. He's highlighting this problem that was stemming from pride. You see, he's saying that the Corinthians thought they were full. They thought that they were rich. They thought they had it made. They were, they, in their minds, they were acting like proud kings, when in reality, they weren't reigning at all. They were saddening the heart of the Lord. And Paul now begins to compare the lives of the apostles to the apparently easy lives of these Corinthian believers in verse 9. He says, For I think 
that God has displayed us, the apostles, last, as men condemned to death. For we have been made a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. He's saying, look, my life is like being lived out as a drama. In verse 10, he says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are dishonored. The irony is very thick in this passage, guys. Everything that he's saying, he really means the opposite here. He's showing how the position of the apostles compares to that of the carnal believers in Corinth. And they're almost exact opposites. You see, the wisdom of God is Christ crucified. And those who follow Christ will find themselves being led down a path of downward mobility. Downward mobility that leads to humility. And and, and it's a path that lasts our entire lifetimes, guys. We, as Christians, following Christ crucified, that picture of Christ crucified, it's, it's the ultimate humility. And that is who we're called to follow. What did Jesus say in Luke 9, 23? He said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him take up his cross and let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. You see, the path of Jesus is a path of downward mobility leading to humility. The apostles were men who gave up their lives for the sake of the gospel They were made into a spectacle because of it. That means that they were basically, like I said, living out their lives in the drama of the world's theater. And even the angels were watching. Angels desire to look into these things. Paul, or the writer of Hebrews, tells us later on. And and he's making that point that, hey, man, we're on display. The world is watching us and really making fun of us. We're a spectacle. That word spectacle, it it also related to captive prisoners after a war. They would get thrown into a procession, a parade, basically. And they would come at the end of that parade with the Roman soldiers and the general in front riding that horse. And and it would be a giant parade. and, And at the very end would be the prisoners. And they were naked and they were beaten. And it was a shameful place to be in that parade because they were being led, actually, to a place where they were going to be killed, probably as uh, uh, gladiators in the arena. So if Paul had a series on Netflix, it would be called The Dregs of All Things, (laughs) or maybe Scum of the Earth, and it would not be very popular. That's because these apostles were fools in the world's eyes, while the Corinthians saw themselves as wise in Christ. (laughs) Paul's going, you guys are... You guys see yourselves as so wise, but we're fools. Then he says, the apostles are weak, while the Corinthian believers are walking around thinking, hey, we're strong. The Corinthians viewed themselves as honorable and distinguished, but the apostles were dishonored both by the world and by the conduct of the church believers. Now in verse 11, Paul drops this tone of irony And he stops comparing the the lives of the apostles to Corinthian believers. And now he begins to share the real life experience of the apostles' lives. In verse 11, he says, to the present hour, meaning that right now, because of the way that you're treating us, this is happening. He says, to the present hour, we both hunger and thirst. We are poorly clothed and beaten and homeless. 
and we labor, working with our hands, being reviled, we bless, being persecuted, we endure, being defamed, we entreat. We have been made as the filth of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. So Paul is sharing now. He's kind of sharing. He's opening up and he's saying, look, I'm being transparent. This is what it's really like for me. This is what my life is like. You know, if somebody reviles me or defames me, I don't have the privilege of being able to be like the world and go, you know what? Forget you. I don't have the opportunity to kick back and to be mean back. And to take my own revenge, he says, I'm following Jesus, and that's not Jesus' way. In sharp contrast to what the Corinthian believers were doing and what they thought Christian leadership was all about, Paul, he's laying out the hard truth. Being a follower of Jesus means a life of self-sacrifice for the sake of the gospel and for the other believers. It's not an easy life. It holds few earthly rewards. And in fact, they were rewarded with hunger and thirst and beatings and homelessness for their service. (laughs) I read this and I'm convicted. Paul speaks several times in his letters of how hard he worked with his hands in the tent making industry so that he could support himself and not be a burden to those that he brought the gospel to. And in repayment for his efforts to share the good news of Jesus, Paul and the other apostles, hey, they were reviled. They were persecuted. They were slandered. They were criticized and judged harshly. In fact, in verse 13 there, did you notice? Paul states it bluntly, doesn't he? He says, hey, we're treated like the trash and the scum of the world. The dregs of all things. You know, We make coffee sometimes in those French presses. And when you finish, you know, squeezing the coffee down to the bottom and you pour that in your cup and you you finish your cup off, there's often some dregs at the bottom of that cup and always take those dregs and throw them in the trash, right? That's what Paul's saying. We're we're like the dregs that get thrown in the trash. And then he goes even further than that. He says, we're actually the scum, the trash of the world. You know, the, 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 the refuse that just gets thrown out. It's disgusting. That's how the world sees them. You know, for anyone who's a Christian leader, this is a humbling passage. You know, we don't really experience these kinds of things to the extent that Paul and his companions had to go through them, do we? You know, have you ever thought about the rewards ceremony in heaven? We've been talking about that the last couple of weeks. You know, and as I've been thinking about it and teaching on it, I've kind of come up with this this imagination, you know, of what it's going to be like. And, and I imagine that, you know, it's going to be, you know, it's going to be big, whatever it is. It's going to be big. There's going to be a lot of food. And it's going to be amazing. But the Bema Seat Judgment, the rapture is going to happen. The Lord's going to take the church up in the air. We're going to sit with the Lord for the seven years wedding feast of the Lamb. And, and, and at some point in that, there's going to be this Bema Seat Judgment, the reward seat of Christ, where he's going to sit down and he's going to pass out the crowns, you know. And I imagine myself seated in some great hall in heaven there, probably maybe some clouds, I don't know, maybe our tables will be on clouds, I don't really know, but it's going to be shiny, it's going to be bright, and there's going to be people sitting around, and you know, I imagine myself possibly sitting next to a small guy with weepy eyes, you know, and looking there at all the people in that great hall, and looking across, and hey, I think that's Noah, check it out, he's got that beard, 
He's got that crazy beard that I imagine he had. And, and, and I'll bet you he's up for the preacher of righteousness reward. Hey, look over there. There's David. I know what toward he's getting. He's getting man after God's own heart award. Man, I can't wait to see what I'm going to get. I can't wait to see what rewards I'm going to get here. And I, I'm, you know, by the way, I'm actually up for a patient endurance award. You know, some people made fun of me for my Christian beliefs while I was living in Texas. Or maybe I'll be up for missionary of the decade. You know, I was a missionary. I was a missionary from 2006 to 2015 in Costa Rica. Yeah, I could be up for that. What about you? What about you, buddy? What are you up for? You, you seem like an interesting kind of a person. Have you been crying at all? Your eyes look kind of weepy. No, not anymore, he says. That's, that was a, there was a time when I couldn't stop crying. But yeah, I, there's no tears in heaven, so I don't cry anymore. But I don't, really don't know what I would be up for. And then I hear the guy next to him say, Hey, Paul, could you pass the salt? I'm like, Paul! Oh, oh my goodness, Paul! You're the missionary of the century, Paul. You're amazing. The author of 13 books of the Bible, Paul. And at that moment, I realize, who am I? Who am I? I don't have a clue what it's like to have suffered for the sake of the gospel like Paul the Apostle did. You see, that's part of the problem. We live in a culture and in a society here in the West that's been blessed because of the gospel. Living in a third world nation for those nine years, almost ten years, was eye-opening for me as I had conversation after conversation with people who look at the United States from the outside and they realize that's a nation that was founded with biblical principles. And the gospel, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is seen throughout the structure of that nation. And we're blessed. Don't take it for granted. We are very, very blessed in this nation. So it's difficult for us to try to relate to Paul. But the problem, and that's part of the problem, is that as I read this, I want to relate to Paul. I want to try to relate to him. But in reality, what we need to do is not try to relate ourselves to Paul, but we need to relate ourselves to the part that the Corinthians needed to hear. You know, the part about pride. That's what we need to hear. And that's not what my flesh wants to hear. That's not what your flesh wants to hear. We don't want to think that we could be guilty of what the Corinthian believers are doing, but that's the problem exactly. Paul is now going to appeal once more in love to his brothers, and not only his brothers, but to his spiritual family in Christ. In the last part of this chapter here, chapter 4, so pick it up in verse 14, Paul's final appeal for unity here, he says, I do not write these things to shame you, but as my beloved children, I warn you. Did you catch the shift in tone? He kind of changes his tone, doesn't he? He goes from irony and sarcasm now to this, this appeal just out of love. He says, look, I'm not trying to shame you. I don't want to shame you. You know, I, I, I use that same uh, kind of tone when I sit down to talk to somebody in my office about maybe something they're going through in their life. I, I want you guys to know that I don't want this church to be a shame-based counseling kind of a place where we, we go, oh, oh, you're doing that. Well, shame on you. No way. I understand sin. I know what it's like. And so when you come into my office to share, I don't want to shame you. I, I want to appeal to you as a brother. 
I want to come alongside of you. I don't want to walk you through this. But that's what Paul's heart is here. It changes. He says, I, I don't write these things to shame you, but I'm writing as, to you as my beloved children to warn you. You know, this weekend I spent some time with a group of my friends who are all turning 40 years old this year. <laughs> Pretty crazy. A lot of black balloons, a lot of old age, old age ahead signs, things like that. So it was pretty interesting. But as I did so, I flew up to Tennessee to hang out with them. And on the plane, I found myself reading an interview in the uh, flight magazine. Any you guys ever do that? I get bored and pull that thing out. But I was reading about a, a recently, uh, well, I was reading about a celebrity. He had an interview in there, a guy who's an artist. He's a recording artist as well as an actor. And I, I don't really know him very well, so it was kind of interesting to me. But what really piqued my curiosity was the fact that he was raised in a Christian home. And the, the father of, of he and his brothers, uh, he was a minister. And so as a minister myself, I naturally am interested in ministers' kids. And so I enjoyed reading through the article and reading about this young man's success. And this young man has apparently gone on to have a career in acting and as a solo musician, as I said. But one of the questions he was asked in the interview was whether or not his role as a gay character in a TV series was contradictory to his childhood faith. And I honed in right there because that was interesting. And his answer was a bit of a disappointment to me as he said something uh, to the effect that he really didn't see a contradiction at all. Uh, and in the interview, he went on to say that while he still believes in God, his worldview has changed to one that is now has love and acceptance at its core. Now, I felt that this was just a subtle way, at least to this young man, of saying that anyone who warns people that a certain lifestyle choice is wrong is not being loving anymore. Paul the Apostle believed just the opposite. You see, Paul the Apostle believed that precisely because God is real, and precisely because he loved the Corinthian believers, that he needed to warn them about their behavior. You see, there's been such a subtle twisting of the meaning of love in modern culture. We need to realize that sometimes the most loving thing that we can do is to share the truth with somebody. And therefore, it is actually very unloving to sit back and to accept sinful behavior in the lives of those that we really love so much. God's love compels us to warn them as a loving brother, or as in the case of Paul, also as a spiritual father. Look at verse 15. For though you may have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet you do not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you, through the gospel. Paul is saying, look, guys, I'm the one who's primarily responsible for bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to your city. He was a spiritual father, a much more prominent position than the men who were dividing the church. The Greek word that Paul uses in verse 15 for instructors, it's a, it's a word that in the Greek culture of his day, that it, it, was, a, it was used for a special slave who was a tutor to the children of that wealthy Greek master. And he was responsible for taking those children to school and following up on their homework and making sure that they were getting their learning done. But there was a great difference between that slave's position and the father's position. 
You see, the difference that Paul points out here is that the tutor is replaceable. The father is not. There's a great difference between these positions, and Paul wants the church to know, look, hey, you might have a lot of instructors there at the church, but I'm the only one who's your spiritual father. So that carries weight. That should carry a lot of weight with them. In verse 16, Paul says, Therefore, I urge you to imitate me. Now, if you underline scripture in your Bible, underline that verse, please, because this is the application and this is the anecdote for prideful behavior. (laughs) Paul is saying, look, if you want to know what to do about your pride, here it is. Imitate me. Now, he's not saying, you know, I'm a celebrity. Follow me. He's saying, look, you guys, if you're looking for the example to follow, I'm it. Follow me as I follow Christ Jesus. That's always what Paul means when he says, imitate me. He says, I'm following Jesus. I want you to follow Jesus too. And so he's laying himself out as an example. This is, this is, this is big to be able to do this. Hey, this takes a lot of guts to say, look, I'm actually going to put myself out there in front of you as a paradigm for you to follow. I read that and I was convicted. I'm like, could I say that to my people? I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I want you guys following me. <laughs> I've already got four little kids that are imitating me and it's ugly, let me tell you. I'm like, whoa, I do that. You know, I, I see their little lives and I see them having their arguments and being prideful and I'm looking at them, I'm going, you guys are prideful. Where do you get that from, you know? And I'm like, oh, wait. <laughs> they see it in me. They see it in my wife, you know. Well, not my wife. It's just me mostly, but <laughs> scoring some points here, right, honey? No. But he just lays it out there. Therefore, I urge you, imitate me. Wow. This is the application this morning. Who in your life is your example? Who's your paradigm? Who are you modeling your life after? Who's your mentor? Who are you learning from, guys? Who are you learning from? Because somebody has to be there in your life that's modeling Jesus and that path of downward mobility that leads to humility. If you don't have that, you need to find it. You desperately need to find it. Now he calls on the believers to follow his pattern of conduct there. And in verse 17, he wants his spiritual children to learn from his example of living for Christ. He says, for this reason, I have sent Timothy to you who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, who will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Now, there are some puffed up. or so, He says, no, now some are puffed up. There's that word again, inflated, inflated. As though I were not coming to you, but I will come to you shortly if the Lord wills. And I will know not the word of those who are puffed up, but the power For the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. What do you want? Shall I come to you with a rod or in love and a spirit of gentleness? Now, that's how the chapter closes uh, with this little word, this personal note. Listen, I'm sending Timothy to you. Timothy is a very trusted brother in the Lord. He's also a, a spiritual child, so to speak, of the Apostle Paul. And Paul has a lot of trust in him. And so Paul's sending this guy to be the one that is going to uh, come alongside of the believers there and, and kind of shepherd them as they go through this difficulty that was dividing the church. And Paul 
you know, he says there at the end, you know, how do you guys want me to come to you? The question is not whether or not I'm coming. I'm definitely showing up. <laughs> but how do you want me to be there with you? Do you want me to come with a rod of correction? Or am I going to come with a spirit of love and gentleness? You know, God's kingdom is more than what you say. It's not a, a kingdom of just words alone. There's a lot of people that go around and they present themselves with a word saying, you know, hey, I'm, I'm a spiritual man. <laughs> I'm a spiritual woman. Look at me. Check, out, check me out. And they have a facade. They have a, a false righteousness that they present to the world. But Paul says that doesn't really matter. <laughs> it's about power. You can talk a good game. You can say all you want. But in the end, it's really about power. Whose power is working in your life? Are you being controlled by the power of your flesh? Hey, you can look real religious and yet be a very fleshly person. Paul says it's about the power. Paul knew God's power was working in his life. The question that the Corinthian leaders needed to ask was, is my life surrendered to the power of the Holy Spirit? What about you? What about your life? Whose power is working in your life today? Is the kingdom of God a kingdom of words to you? In which you are uh, walking around and, 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 you know, it's about you living out your insecurities, living out that look-at-me attitude in the church? Or is your Christian walk based on the power that comes from God himself? The relationship that you have with Jesus, the time that you spend with him alone, cultivating a real, genuine, sincere walk with Jesus. That's where your power is supposed to come from, church. That's where our power is supposed to be from. So this message is about pride versus humility, the wisdom of the world against godliness. The puffed up attitude or the poor in spirit heart that Jesus wants us to have. What will it be if Paul were to come to us today? Would he come to you and visit you with a rod of correction? That doesn't mean that he would beat you down, by the way. It just means that he would come alongside you and correct you using the scriptures. Or would he come alongside of you in, in a spirit of gentleness because you're teachable, because you manifest a poor in spirit type of an attitude that says, hey, I, I just, I know that I'm not there, but I, I want to be. I'm, I'm not where I need to be, but I, I, I'm willing to be taught. I'm willing to be discipled. I'm willing to be mentored. Where's your heart today? Let's pray.